Welcome to the Critique Journal Club for August 2012. I'm Neil Orford and we'll have a look at what caught our eye in the literature for the last month. Let's start with the IABP Shock 2 trial published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Now this is possibly a game changer as conducting an RCT in 600 patients with cardiogenic shock requiring revascularization is no easy task. So the lead up to this trial is sound. Uh, mortality in patients with cardiogenic shock requiring PCI or revascularization is high. And the IABP is widely used as a mechanical hemodynamic support in this setting. Indeed, its use in this setting is a Class 1B recommendation in the US and 1C in Europe. However, in practice, IABP use in this setting occurs only 25 to 40% of the time, suggesting clinician uncertainty or equipoise. This is probably contributed to by unconvincing evidence in previous trials, like the original IABP shock trial, in which 45 patients randomised to IABP or state of care showed no difference in outcomes. In this study, 600 patients with AMI complicated by cardiogenic shock, which is defined as shock within 12 hours of onset, in whom early revascularization was planned, were randomised to balloon pump or best medical management. The IBP was inserted immediately prior to or immediately after PCI, and the median duration of support was three days. The primary outcome was 30-day mortality, and there was no difference between the groups. So in the balloon pump group, it was 39.7%, and in the control, 41.3%. When they looked at the primary outcome in pre-specified subgroups or post-hoc analysis, there was still no difference. And finally, there was no difference in any adverse events, and that includes leg ischemia. Now, there are some limitations. Possibly the mortality was a little low for this population at 40%, with previous studies reporting mortalities around 45 to 50%, and clearly they couldn't blind. Still, these don't seem to be big issues. Overall, we're left with the conclusion that in cardiogenic shock requiring revascularization, the IABP may be safe, but it's not effective. And this is potentially a practice changer. In critical care medicine, we have a study that compares the effect of a rapid response seen based on the usual care or sort of ward care providers rather than a critical care team in 171,341 consecutive patients admitted to an urban university medical centre in the US. This was conducted as an interrupted time series analysis over a six-year period, with the period divided into a baseline, implementation and intervention period. Despite being older with more comorbid conditions, patients in the intervention period had a lower unadjusted and adjusted unexpected mortality rate, with the odds ratio of 0.2, a p-value less than 0.0001. And that persisted after adjustments for time trends in mortality. There was no difference in overall hospital mortality, and the rapid response dose was high at sort of 53 per 1,000 discharges, 
Remember, in previous studies, this ranges from 8.7 to 39.6. And the authors suggest that this may be due to decreased barriers to activation. Now, it could also mean that there are a lot of physiologically unstable patients who weren't sorted out prior to the intervention. Finally, over 20% of call activations were transferred to ICU. Now, this is a lot by Australian standards, and it could simply reflect the high number of ICU beds in the institution. They had 55 to 77 in a 500-bed hospital. So a personnel-neutral system did not change overall mortality, but it did significantly reduce the amount of unexpected death. That is, more of the deaths became expected. Now, US legislators have passed laws requiring hospitals to implement rapid response teams, and in Australia, hospital accreditation now requires deteriorating patient systems as part of the national standards. So rapid response teams are a big issue, and perhaps this study will help us move towards the idea of usual care providers taking some of the load. Still with critical care medicine, we have the effects of fluid resuscitation with synthetic colloids or crystalloids alone on shock reversal, fluid balance and patient outcomes in patients with severe sepsis. So the guillotine is descending further for synthetic colloids. The existing question marks we should all be aware of, lack of superiority compared to crystalloids, suggestion of renal damage, bleeding and other harm, this single-centre prospective sequential analysis looked at starch, then gelatin, then crystalloid for septic shock reversal using preset goals over three two-year periods in over a 1,000 patients. They found that hemodynamic goals were similar, with more noradrenaline use on day zero and days three to eight in the crystalloid group, higher mean daily blood pressure on most days in the colloid groups, there was no difference in shock reversal, and the crystalloid group required 1.4-fold more fluid than the starch group and 1.1 more than the gelatin group in the first four days. Over the entire ICU stay, the colloid groups received more fluid. The colloid groups also received more blood products. The starch and gelatin groups had significantly more renal replacement therapy and acute kidney injury, higher median creatinine levels, longer duration of ventilation, and longer ICU length of stay than crystalloid. Mortality did not differ. Starch and gelatin were independent risk factors for renal replacement therapy after multiple logistic regression analysis. So it was single-centre, there were discrepancies at baseline, and there may have been time-dependent changes that occurred over the study period, but... This is not good news for synthetic colloids. The chest and basis studies due out later this year are going to be really interesting in helping us resolve this. And finally, perhaps it's another example of the problems of surrogate physiological endpoints in that this study, mean blood pressure was higher on day 1 to 4 in the colloid groups which helped to minimise noradrenaline use, but this didn't result in a better outcome. And this is similar to the lower early oxygen levels that we saw in the ARDSNAT group, in the control arm. And again, they weren't associated with better outcomes. So, food for thought. A very thoughtful paper was published in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine on end-of-life care in the ICU. Can we simultaneously increase quality and reduce costs? So, the authors posed two questions. 
Firstly, are there patients currently dying in the ICU who, given the opportunity to make informed choices, would have preferred end-of-life care that didn't involve ICU admissions? And two, for those who die in the ICU, might a focus on improving palliative care earlier in the ICU stay, increase quality of care, while reducing costs? The authors go on to examine four arguments previously put forward around improvements in end-of-life care in ICU. So the first one is that expensive patients are often those who have long ICU stays and an intermediate risk of death at ICU admission. For these individuals, it is difficult to predict the outcome of ICU care. The authors argue and agree that it is true that medical futility patients are uncommon, that we struggle to reliably predict with certainty who will not survive ICU. However, there is an alternate approach that may help. Firstly, can we identify patients who are unlikely to achieve their own goals through ICU admission and therefore choose not to undergo ICU? And secondly, are there patients who may choose to commence ICU and then realise during the course of their stay that they won't achieve their goals? So that is, we change the focus from trying to predict who will die in ICU to identifying the intensity of care that patients desire. The second argument, or area of improvement, is that although the most extreme cost-ineffective critical care is provided to patients who have a very low likelihood of survival, oftentimes they, or their surrogate decision-makers, believe that life should be prolonged at all costs despite the small chance of success. This represents a small number of patients and stopping the care is often difficult and requires overriding strongly held patient or family preferences. The authors agree this is a small group. Uh, The support study of patients with advanced chronic life-limiting disease admitted to a hospital with serious illness looked at this, and that really we probably can't do much about it. The third argument about ineffective care is that shortening stays in the ICU may not reduce costs as much as expected because a large proportion of ICU costs are fixed, such as capital expenditure and building maintenance and staff wages. So although there's truth to that, ICU cost savings can be achieved by reducing the daily costs, that is less tests and less interventions, reducing the number of people that come through, less consumables, less interventions, and reducing the number of days. By and then replacing them with cheaper low-acuity care. So it's estimated that 84% of ICU costs are fixed and that savings can really only be made by closing beds. However, the other side of this is the ability to allow other patients' care episodes to occur or delay the need to fund further beds that are being filled with ineffective care. The fourth and final argument is that early, high-profile interventions to reduce intensive care at the end of life are ineffective and raise questions about the utility of such efforts. And here they're talking about advanced directives prior to hospitalisation and facilitated communication during hospitalisation. Now, this is not completely correct. Evidence in cancer patients and elderly hospitalised patients suggests that end-of-life communication, particularly facilitated communication in hospital, improves quality of care in terms of patient satisfaction and decreases ICU use. Despite the importance of communication about end-of-life care, numerous studies suggest that the quality of clinician communication 
about end-of-life care remains poor, including discussions about prognosis, advanced care planning and shared decision-making. So what cost savings could occur if we had really good planning for end-of-life issues? Well, the authors provide a hypothetical US model of 25% of the over-85-year-old ICU admits in the US being cared for in a ward environment rather than ICU. and That would save US $42 million per annum. They admit that this is modest, but also that it's probably an underestimate. So, an interesting food-for-thought type of study. Moving on to the other end of the spectrum, we had a prospective trial of a paediatric ventricular assist device, the Berlin Heart, published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Now, the Berlin Heart has been used for the last decade to bridge children with heart failure to recovery or transplant, and it's one of only two pulsatile VADs on the market and it's by far the most widely used. So this was a prospective single-group multi-centre trial that compared implantation of a VAD designed specifically for children to a historical ECMO control group in patients under 16 years of age requiring mechanical circulatory support as a bridge to heart transplantation. The VAD cohorts were divided into two groups of 24 based on body surface area, and there were 48 ECMO patients matched to each VAD cohort, that is a two-to-one matching. Cohort 1 had a median age of one year and weighed nine kilos. Cohort 2 was nine years and 31 kilos. In both cohorts, the cause of cardiac failure was predominantly cardiomyopathy or myocarditis, with congenital heart disease a smaller proportion. Now, the primary outcome was death or weaning due to unacceptable neurological outcome. The study found that the VAD group had lower mortality, were able to be supported for longer than the ECMO group, but there was an associated high risk of complications. So the bill in heart remains a good option for medium-term mechanical support of the failing paediatric heart. We were fortunate to have a commentary by Johnny Miller, the Director of Cardiothoracic ICU at the Royal Children's Hospital in Victoria, and he has provided an expert opinion about how this study fits into the larger world of paediatric heart transplantation and mechanical support. Another article in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine uh, looks at early intensive care sedation and its ability to predict long-term mortality in ventilated critically ill patients. This multi-centre prospective longitudinal cohort study assessed the relationship between early sedation, which is the first 48 hours, and long-term outcome, which was six-month survival, in ventilated critically ill patients using multivariable Cox regression to adjust for other factors. 251 patients were followed with overall hospital and six-month mortality of 21.1% and 25.8%. 76% of the patients were deeply sedated and 51% experienced at least one day of delirium. Sedation targets were set only 24.9% of the time and only one-third of patients met these targets. Routine sedation interruption was uncommon, 3% of study days. And after multivariable analysis, early deep sedation was associated with long time to extubation and a probability of death at six months. 
So what do we take from this? Well, we don't set sedation goals, we allow deep sedation, and we don't interrupt it. And perhaps the reasons behind this need exploration. Early deep sedation is associated with longer ventilation and increased mortality. Is it causative or is it just a sign of being sicker? Now, the Cox proportional modelling tried to address this, but many will argue that until patients are randomised, the possibility of confounding remains. So, bring on the RCT. If you haven't given much thought to resource allocation and what to do in a pandemic when ICU beds are scarce, then there's a paper in the MJA this month that is worth reading. So this prospective multi-centre study evaluated the effect of using two influenza triage protocols on critical care bed availability in eight adult tertiary referral ICUs in New South Wales and Queensland in Australia. So the protocols were the New South Wales Protocol and the Ontario Health Plan influenza pandemic protocols and they were applied to patients admitted to the ICUs during the six-week study period. The protocols are provided in the paper and are designed to exclude patients from ICU with a poor prognosis or failure to respond on an escalating basis. Now, they weren't actually used to change patient care. They just applied the rules to the patient population to see what would happen in theory. And they report that during the study, 36% of patients would be excluded because they were admitted for elective surgery and that the remaining patients had a mean ICU length of, say, 5.4 days 4,500 ICU bed days and an ICU mortality of 12%. The protocols worked. They resulted in significant increases in ICU bed availability uh, and that incremented as they moved up the tiers. So if you are in a pandemic, it's probably worth having a look at these and considering using them to help you manage your resource. Of course, you have to consider what the authors didn't deliberate on because it's a different paper, which is the ethics of exclusion and how palatable that would be to a community in or out of a pandemic. A single centre retrospective study published in Intensive Care Medicine looked at the outcomes of 100 patients requiring ventilatory or extracorporeal support with a high urgency lung transplant status in Hanover, a centre that supports lung transplant in ventilated patients. This issue of lung transplantation in patients receiving mechanical ventilation is controversial, with reluctance on the part of transplant teams due to poor outcomes. This results in the difficult situation of young patients who may be ventilator-dependent without a curative destination. In contrast, since 2005, ventilated lung transplant candidates in the US and handover have had allocation directed towards them via the lung allocation score. In this group of 100 patients, of the 60 who are transplanted, 62% survived to hospital discharge and 57% to one year. Of the 40 who weren't, only two survived to one year. We're not told why 38 patients that died on a ventilator did not receive an organ. Um, that is, are there confounders that made them high risk? So the authors point out that these survival rates are worse than overall lung transplant and that careful selection is needed. However... They did get reasonably good outcomes, the ones that they did select, and it does open the idea that lung transplant or ventilation can produce reasonably good outcomes. Finally, another article in Intensive Care Medicine, Candida Species Airway Colonisation Could Promote Antibiotic-Resistant Bacteria Selection in Patients with Suspected VAP. 
Now, the significance of Canada colonisation in the airway of ventilated critically ill patients is debated. In particular, the relationship to VAP and the benefits of treatment are uncertain. You may remember in 2009 the study by Messerman, which essentially led to the abandonment of the treatment of candidal pneumonia in immunocompetent critically ill adults. This study explores a different issue, that is, the possibility that candida airway colonisation could promote VAP with MDR bacteria. Over a four-year period, 323 consecutive patients with suspected VAP were included in the study, of which 56% had candida colonisation. Despite being similar at baseline, the candida group had higher ICU mortality, 44% compared to 31%, and candida colonisation and time between ICU admission and VAP were the only two independent predictors of MDR bacteria isolation. So this suggests that candida is a common coloniser in VAP, is associated with an increased risk of MDR bacteria, and increased mortality. Now this is plausible. There are other studies supporting the notion of interplay between candida and pseudomonas due to the biofilm environment, and that MDR is promoted in a biofilm environment, so maybe it is. So should we treat candida colonisation to prevent MDR VAP? This is a hypothesis generation study and needs more prospective, well-designed studies to evaluate it. So that's it for August Journal Club. Thanks for listening, and come to the Critique website to have a better look at the papers.